Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Adam Fitch, if I have not met you uh, yet. I, uh, we, my family and I have been coming here for a little over a year. Uh, I am uh, the, we call it head of upper school at Veritas School in Newburgh. Essentially, it's the hoity-toity term that we use for principal of uh, middle school and, and high school over at Veritas. And so that's my current job. Prior to that, I was the pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Newburgh for about nine years. And that's where I met Matt. Um, he, he came here about the same time that I showed up uh, there in Newburgh. And Matt and I started showing up at the same, at that time, called CB Northwest Pastor Gatherings. And we realized we didn't live very far apart. So we started carpooling together. And then he's become one of my very best friends. And it's when my time at Grace Baptist was done, that's how we ended up here. So um, I get the privilege of preaching to you this morning. Uh, and I'm preaching this morning and again in two weeks. And so we're going to break this into two sermons. Uh, you are welcome to open your Bibles to the book of Jude. And Jude is one of those, I, I told Matt almost on a whim, because I haven't preached Jude. And Jude, I think, is very relevant for our time, but I haven't preached it in a while. And in fact, I, and not to sound like I'm cheating a little bit, but when you have another whole full-time job and you're, and you're going to preach somewhere, you will pull out your previous sermons and use those because uh, it helps with your preparation. But one of the things is I realized how long it had been because I couldn't find my past sermons on this. So I finally fired up an old computer, found them, and then realized to my horror that I preached through Jude in six sermons last time, and we're going to do it in two. Um, and so uh, we're going to move kind of quickly through this, and the the fun part about this, a little bit I think is fun, is that it doesn't often get preached through because as one commentary pointed out, that in such a brief book, um, it's safe to say there is not more discussable, controversial, and debatable things in a New Testament letter than there is in Jude. And so we're not going to get into all those things. I'll point out where they are and that in essence those little controversies there don't really change the meaning of the book. And I call them controversies as too heavy. It's more along the lines of looking at the sources that Jude uses. But I wanted uh, us to go through Jude this week and then again in two weeks as we look at contending for the faith. Now, when I was growing up as a youngster, I was the grandson of a pastor, and, a, and my other grandparents were teachers, and so hence how my worlds collided into what I do now. Uh, but I remember thinking as I was growing up, I was really into apologetics. Um, in fact, I buy every one of my kids the apologetics study Bible today because I think it's really important. But one of the things I became passionate about is trying to figure out what everybody else believed and recognizing the threats to, the, to Christianity and the threats to the church as if any of those threats could actually win. But I remember that growing up. I remember when the, the Case for Christ came out and how much I really uh, appreciated that book and enjoyed that book. And I remember talking to my grandfather one day at the table, at, the, at his kitchen table, and talking about I wanted to go into seminary and study apologetics. And he said, Adam, that's, that's admirable, and I appreciate that, and we need people to be able to defend our faith. He says, but rarely have I seen anyone argued into salvation, nor have I seen very many people be able to disprove something to the point where someone comes to faith in Jesus. Now, it does happen, but his point was, maybe turn your focus to know the gospel and know your Bible really well and be able to talk about that. Because in essence, it's the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ that brings you to him, not your ability to win an argument. And I think he was very wise. 
But the other thing I realized after getting into ministry is the threat to the church is not really from outside the church. See, we oftentimes, we get really scared about, like, the atheist. Okay? Well, can you recognize all believers in this room? Can you recognize that an atheist and what they believe might be contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Right? Like, easy question. You might say, there are no dumb questions. That was kind of a dumb question. Because just by definition, okay, you'd be able to recognize that. Right? You can recognize religions that are contrary to the gospel. Where the church has run into struggles since the beginning of the church is from within the church when the church from within has factions that develop or starts to stray from the message of the gospel is when contention begins and discord begins and churches struggle with from within. Now, as I'm going to talk today about the state of the church or threats to the church, I'm not talking about this specific church in this geographic location right here, right now. So I don't want you to be like, does this guy even want to be here? That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? I'm going to talk about the church global and especially the church in our nation. Now, if that makes you nervous, don't. Okay? Because what I'm going to say is like nothing new for the struggle of the church. Again, since its inception, clear back in the book of Acts. Right? Because when you read the book of Acts... Do you see difficulties within that church with what do we believe, what do we not believe, and who's arguing and maybe fighting with whom? Yes. In fact, two of the major biblical authors struggled with each other at times, Peter and Paul, right? So it's to be expected that we're going to have moments in which we have to, like, really, what does this book say and how do we follow that in order to be effective as a Christian church in our area, our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's what we're going to be talking about this week and again in two weeks. Now what I want to do is, because it's not that long, is I'm just going to read this letter to you from Jude, and then we'll get into who wrote it and, and all of the, the facts that you want to know about it before we get into the content of it. And so today we're going to do the first 10 verses. It's going to be a weird spot to stop, but there is no really great place to stop once you start this book. And so we're going to start in two weeks with Woe will be the first, woe to them will be the first verse we talk about in two weeks. Excuse my voice, I'm realizing I cheered on our cross-country team at their district meet a few days ago, and one of the players, one of the runners came back and said, Mr. Fitch, your voice just booms across the entire course. Like, I know, because it, it, if you're on cross-country, that's a tough sport. And, you, and it's funny, because when you cheer for somebody, it's funny to watch them actually, like, they get a little boost of energy, because they're struggling. So I just scream, and I'm realizing now I should have thought that through if I was going to be preaching this morning. So let's read together um, the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. There are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt 
but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. There are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. There are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own godly, ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray before we talk more about this letter. Dear Jesus, you are our Lord, you are our Savior, you are holy and just and loving and steadfast. Lord, we pray as we dig into your word deeper that you will help us understand what you want us to know from Jude's writing. And we know how to apply it to our lives. And that we cling to the fact that we can have mercy, peace, and love, and that we can have great joy as we heed the warnings that you offer through your word. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we get into this letter, the first thing you're going to see is, I love how it starts, and I love, this is like a great example of how we interact as believers, where there's a blessing and there's an understanding of who we are in Christ, and a common understanding of who we are with one another, and then we're going to talk about the tough stuff. 
So it's kind of as you start reading the letter, imagine being the ones that received this letter from Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, yeah, who are loved in God the Father, absolutely, and kept for Jesus Christ, amen. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Ah, oh, what a great letter. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Well, the letter just took a turn. Woohoo! We have mercy, peace, grace. This is wonderful. This is amazing. And what just happened? What are we being warned about? Now, the person giving them the warning has the right to give them the warning because he is one of the early church leaders. He is writing to the same audience that Peter wrote to. So if you want to know specific geographic locations that were receiving this letter, go back and read the first few verses of 1 Peter. That is to whom specifically Jude is sending this letter. But in essence, as you read it, you can tell Jude's audience is for it to be shared widely, right? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, i.e., all those who believe. So when they receive this letter, it is supposed to be passed on because it's an applicable warning for all churches everywhere and I would say for all time because certain battles do not change within the church. Now, who is Jude? Here's a really fascinating thing for me. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Okay, and I say half-brother because, as we know, like Mary and Joseph, they had other children together after Jesus. And we know that, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him when he was involved in his ministry. Okay? We see that from John 7, verses 3 through 5. Due to all the intricacies of these verses, I won't be reading all the things I reference, so I'll try to say it a couple times if you wanted to jot it down, because we're going to be all over the place, including with my hands, so if that distracts you, then close your eyes. Okay, but this is how I roll, and I move around a lot. That way I know if you're sleeping or not. No, just kidding. Um, if you're following, I know you're with me. But John 7, verses 3 through 5, in verse 5, it just flat out says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So brothers, plural. One of the other brothers is James. But they do come to believe in him because what we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, is that the apostles are praying. There's a group of women praying. Jesus' mother Mary is praying. And... His brothers, Jesus' brothers are praying at that point while they wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So while Jesus' own family rejected him, including at one point, like recommending he go through Samaria in hopes that he would get killed. That's how much they did not like him. Okay? But yet they come after his resurrection to believe in him. Now, why doesn't Jude just flat out say, Jude, brother of Jesus? Well, notice how he identifies himself in his relationship to Jesus Christ. He is his bondservant. He is his servant. Okay? It's the change that happens positionally. He recognizes who Jesus is. He does not feel like he can put himself on that same familial level, a family level, with Jesus. But definitely with his other brother, James, he does. Now, others will have different theories as to who wrote the book, but common um, agreement today is that that is... It is Jesus' half-brother Jude. Now, he has written it 
to all believers, those who have been called by the Holy Spirit, and expected this to be passed around to others who believe in addition to the, the original recipients of the letter. And it's a beautiful beginning where he says that we are beloved by the Father. We're loved by the Father. We're his beloved. 1 John 3, 1, we're called children of God. John 3, 16, I think most of you probably know, but indicates the, the extent of God's love for us. And he has adopted us into his family. And we're kept, which means guarded safely. Now, I want you to flip in your Bibles because it's very close, and it's one of my favorite Bible verses, 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few pages back. I'll read verses 3 through 7 to you. <clears throat> this is an example of what Jude is talking about with how we are kept by the Spirit. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I love that passage. That passage should fill you not just with hope, but with confidence. Okay? You are kept by the Lord himself. You are sealed by the Lord himself. If our salvation were up to us, we would lose it. I don't know about you, but I do my best to follow my Savior, but I mess up. I sin. Confession to the Lord is a big part of my life. I hope it is a part of your life as well. But we are sealed as those who believe in Jesus by Him. The one who parts the Red Sea. The one who hung the stars in the sky. He will not lose or misplace you. You are kept by him. So when you look at the opening of Jude's letter, he's going to give them some tough information, but he's encouraging them before they get into it, the fact that in their identity, those who believe, you are always loved and you are safe in the arms of your Savior. And because of that, you can experience mercy, peace, and love, not just a little bit, but in abundance. Okay? It's kind of like what Peter said in that verse we just read, which is, you're going to have difficulties. There's no way around it. Did Peter have difficulty? Like this, yes. Anybody know the legend? It's not in the scripture, but the legend as to how Peter eventually went to glory? Crucified upside down. But yet, he's looking for this inheritance that is to come for all eternity. And our life in this world is but a blink compared to what is coming. And he clung to that. It doesn't mean you have to be happy all the time, but it does mean you can experience joy in abundance. You can have peace that surpasses understanding. 
So abundance is an overflowing measure. In an overflowing measure, you can, you have experienced mercy. We will at times fail, but we can rely upon the mercy offered us through Christ's sacrifice. You can have peace, not as the world defines it, because right now, if you watch the news too much, which I'm sure some of you are guilty of that. I used to be that way. It was like, I gotta consume all of this information. And somebody asked me one time, aren't you more worried about this? I said, no, because I watch the information, and I turn it off, and I move on. Because the more I binge all of the details of everything, the more I get down here. And you're like, well, doesn't that make you ignorant? No, I know what's going on. I know how to pray, but I also know how to protect my mind and my heart and realize that whatever is happening, God has got it under control. Sounds simplistic. But I can have peace because I'm trusting it all to the Lord. I need to know what's going on, but I don't need to know all the gory details. Because that's when we obsess about those things. We don't experience that peace that God has offered us through him. We forget who's in control. But Philippians 4, 7, which 4, 6 tells you not to be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, present your request to God. And what happens then if you're doing that? You are next then experiencing a peace that surpasses understanding, that transcends understanding, and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The world's going to tell you to be worried. God's going to tell you you are going to have troubles. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. And you can experience love in overflowing measure because of what your Savior has done for you. Then he gets into the tough stuff. Verse 3 tells us that he sat down to write one letter, which is going to be an amazing letter. He prays on them. Okay, I felt... Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, or as the Holy Spirit laid upon his heart, to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. So if he feels or is compelled to write to contend for the faith to this church, what has he heard about the church? Because if he's not there to see it, he's hearing it. So something's going on in the church in which whether it's gossip or rumors or factual information, but word has traveled to him that there's some things that need to be fixed in this church. And he's going to lay out what that looks like. But the fact that he felt compelled to, to write this letter means that it was a big deal and an imminent threat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Starting in verse 4, he says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. There are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So what he's saying is this, is that there are people who have slipped in amongst the church who have risen up to a point in which they can corrupt the rest of the church. And it's not a new problem because he's pointing out that he's writing this in the first generation of the church and he's saying this has been written about long ago. Some of that long ago is you go back into the Old Testament in both Zephaniah 1 and Zechariah 1 verses 4 through 6 of both books which is really ironic and coincidental speak to this same idea that prophets are warning God's people 
and they're warning against false teachers or idolatry pulling God's people away and what the cost is if that happens. Now, this is serious business. I use the word contending in the title of these, these uh, sermons, and what you see Jude write about here is he tells them to contend for the faith. That word contend is very rarely used, the original Greek word is very rarely used in the New Testament, and what it means is intense struggle in an athletic contest. I don't know how many of you are, have been, I'm not an athlete anymore, I'm just going to say that, I'd like to think I am to like try to jog, um, but I don't know how many of you have ever been involved in athletics, and you have to train, and I use the example of cheering on our middle school and high school cross country teams this past week, you can't just wake up one day, hop out on the course and run a 5k, it will not feel good, you have to do a lot of intentional training throughout time, and then when it's time to compete, it's very, very intense and so what Jude is saying here is people have slipped in amongst you and you are going to have to be intentional and it's going to be intense but you must for the health and sake of your church contend with this issue in other words you can't do what all of our inclination tends to be which is it's bide time and hope that the problem just goes away in my time in various leadership roles there's always the temptation to be like Okay, I see this problem coming. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to hope God supernaturally intervenes and it will go away on its own. Rarely have I ever seen that actually happen. What I mean by this is God can absolutely intervene, but God is sending a message through Jude like, guess who my representatives on earth are? You, O believer. So I will strengthen you. I'll equip you. I will assist you. I am there with you but I'm calling you to be the one that confronts the difficult situation. And nobody enjoys that, but the stakes are very, very high, as Jude points out to us here. So now, what is the, the charge actually? They have slipped in amongst the church. There are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. So what are they doing? They're basically found a way to appease sin because Jesus died on the cross for them. Because Jesus died for you, we're not going to take that, this or that sin. And we're going to see some examples of sin in a moment here. And a time-tested thing, I shouldn't say time-tested, but over the course of time, one of the consistent issues that rises up amongst God's people is sexual immorality. And so part of what they're dealing with in the church is sexual immorality but they have some other doctrinal heresies that are creeping up as well. But some people have slipped into somehow the leadership or the teaching or the influential role within the church that are somehow sending the message to people in the church that it is okay to commit certain sins or maybe certain sins aren't really sins or now don't worry about it because Jesus died on the cross for you and he rose again. That's how they're polluting the grace of God. Or twisting the grace of God. Uh, I'm going to read this one to you. You can flip with me if you would like to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 26 and 27. 
Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging, of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who has rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled on the Son of God underfoot, who has treated an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Harsh words. But that's what Jude is warning the people in this church or in these churches about, which is, this is not a light thing, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not to be taken lightly. Now, he started the letter talking about those who are kept. He's pointing out these teachers have infiltrated this, the churches to preach this kind of message, which is going to confuse people. It tramples on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but it also exposes their actual lack of faith. If you truly believe in Jesus... The Holy Spirit in you is not going to let you feel good about just intentionally sinning as if it's no big deal. You will, it's, it's that thing when I talk to teenagers about it, it's like, why is it that you feel like bothered when you don't enjoy like the thing that your friends might enjoy that the Bible calls a sin? Like they seem to be having so much fun. How come when I do this, when I'm done with whatever it is, I'm like grumpy, upset, insecure, unsettled? Well, that's the Holy Spirit in you going, you're not going to enjoy this. I'm not going to let you enjoy this. I'm not going to let you feel comfortable in sin. Because as much as you try to tamp that down, if you're a believer, now you can be 46 years old and have the same mind game. But if you're trying to tamp that conscious conscience down, saying, it's not that big a deal, but yet you're still wrestling with, like, why do I feel like it's a big deal? Because everything on, I watch on TV, people I hear talking to me are telling me it's not a big deal, but yet... I feel like it's a big deal. That's probably the Holy Spirit through Scripture telling you it's a big deal because you represent me to the rest of the world. You are my ambassador to the rest of the world. They may, the first way that they see Jesus is through his believers. So are we representing him well to the world? Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. I'm far from that. But that's that continual process that Jesus is putting us through or the Holy Spirit is putting us through to represent him to the rest of the world. Well, in this church, people have stepped into roles that appear to be teachers or leadership roles that are leading people astray and confusing the message of the gospel. And as I pointed out a minute ago, and I'm just going to, for the sake of time, just point us to later in Jude that speaks about the warnings that are there for people who misrepresent Christ almost intentionally, just in verses 14 through 15 of Jude. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, those people who are, are leading people astray. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. God is a God of justice and a God of mercy. One of the examples coming in just a moment is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we're not going to read the story, but it's interesting. God shows tremendous mercy on Lot. Did Lot deserve the tremendous mercy? I'm going to say no, because if you watch Lot's like, solution to the problem, story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? some angels go in to 
Um, the city, they see Lot at the gate. Lot takes them home to serve them a dinner, and the men of the city surround the house. They want to send out the angels, although they look like men, for them to have their way with in a very bad way. I'll spare the details. You can read it Genesis 19. Anybody remember? You don't have to yell it out, but I'm just going to call it to your memory. What was Lot's original solution? Don't hurt my guests. Take my daughters. Oftentimes, we kind of miss that part of the story. How mortifying is that? So God shows mercy, but God is a God of justice, and we're going to get examples of justice here in a moment. Or of, of that. But what you see, and you can write these down, but take a look at Zechariah 1, Zephaniah 1. We'll give also warnings about this. In the New Testament, you have Jesus even talking about evil is going to come, ungodly things are going to come, but woe to those through whom they come. And it's the same verse in which he talks about the fact that anyone who causes a little one to stumble in my name it's better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. But that's how serious this is to make sure that if we're going to teach people about Jesus, that we're truly teaching them about Jesus. We're truly teaching them the Bible. Now, again, if you're ever taught the Bible and you've made a mistake, don't be like, oh, no! That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those who are going in with the motive to deceive or to try to excuse sin that's what we're talking about here all right now here are three examples of of uh of judgment that we see here verses five through seven though you already know all this so those who are true believers you know this i'm going to remind you of this i want to remind you that the lord at one time delivered his people out of egypt Woo-hoo! but later destroyed those who did not believe oh no okay and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So you have three examples here. The first one's an easy one to look at. Most of us probably know the story. Israel, after the exodus from Egypt, stood at the precipice of the promised land and doubted that God would protect them. For their unfaithfulness, the entire generation passed away except for two, Caleb and Joshua. All those 20 and older, other than Caleb and Joshua, passed away during the 40 years of wandering through the desert for their unbelief. The next example is a very strange one. And I think this is how I ended up preaching this in six sermons, because I think some of these take a little bit of time. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. You can explore it with your own fun time. But in essence, we have this odd little story here or example in which Jude speaks of angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling and has kept them in darkness bound with everlasting change for judgment on that great day. There are all kinds of theories as to who these angels are who did not keep their place. I really would love to go into all of them right now. I'm going to let you look into that. I'm even going to resist giving you some examples. But apparently at some point in time, and I do have a theory on my own of where this is, but the other part is I give you the theory, you're not going to hear anything else I say for the rest of the time because you're going to wonder and go on your own little scavenger hunt to figure it out. So I'm not going to do that. But at some point in our cosmic history, some angels didn't keep their position, i.e. 
apart from humans or in their position with God and on his team. So this could be the fall from heaven with Lucifer, but likely not because we think those are who are demons in the world today. Okay? But there's some specific sin that a group of fallen angels committed. And they have already received their punishment. And you see this actually in just one book back in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, in which you have, I shouldn't say one book back, but um, a couple of books back, where part of what Peter writes here is, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And then he goes on. And you can see where maybe the theories of where these fallen angels sinned. But this is an example used to prove a point, which is God is a just and holy God who brings punishment on those who abuse their position, including the angelic. No one is exempt from God's judgment. And then the third example I already used with you is Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you're receiving this letter in the church, it's a little scary. And they're not questioning their salvation, probably. Maybe some of them are. But in essence, they're asking themselves, is our church or is the church on the right path in the direction that we're supposed to go? The battle plan is then the fourth point in the sermon, our last point, verses 8 through 11. So he gives them kind of some idea as to where you're supposed to go as a church. And it's kind of in between the lines. There's more coming in two weeks that's more concrete in what we do with this information. But in the very same way, verse 8 of Jude, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. The very things they do understand by instinct, as rational animals do, will destroy them. They might be looking at that going, okay, I don't see a plan there. I see more examples of doom and gloom. But let's take a look at it here quickly as we get ready to wrap up. First of all, what is this, the strength by which people are making decisions in church leadership that Jude is trying to address here? It's their dreams. Now, their dreams might not mean literally they fell asleep and had a dream, although there's been some false religions that have started due to visions or dreams. Okay? But in essence, it's their own thoughts or their own imaginations, not sound doctrine. In other words, what I want to be true must be true because I feel it. I think it. I can rationally think it through. This must be what God wants for me, even if it disagrees with the Bible. Have we seen that at all in our culture today? Yes. You don't have to yell at examples. Okay, because I'm not here just to throw daggers at other churches. I'm here to make sure, like, as I talk about these things, I say these things, I work in a non-denominational school, for example, but we're always having to watch to make sure that what we discuss, what we talk about, what we study is indeed in Scripture and not from a certain, a certain tradition or interpretation that is not explicit. So we try to keep those things out of the school because that's up for people to, to discuss out there in their churches, but my concern overall is for the church and especially the church in America, that we're actually looking at what doctrine is. So that's the battle plan. Dreams. What's the opposite of their, their own dreams? It's scripture. They pollute their own bodies. The context of this is speaking of giving in to sinful desires. 
They reject authority, God's authority. How dare you tell me what to do? I would extend that to say church authority. Each church that has a pastor and group of elders has some semblance of authority when you join yourself with that church. doesn't mean they get to come, like, examine every part of your bank account and all that kind of stuff, but it does mean that if I am stepping astray from the faith, Matt should sit me down and say, as kindly as you can, I love you, but some things have to change. And if I don't change those things, then Matt comes with somebody else and says, we love you, but these things have to change. And you know what I'm talking about here, the church discipline process? Well, those who dip into whether it's moral heresy or doctrinal heresy, by moral heresy, I mean just like Bible makes certain things clear and we decide, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to teach that it's okay to do something different. Okay. One of the common threads is rejection of authority. God's authority, church authority, and instead I am autonomous and I can make the decisions for myself. I have authority. Then this strange thing called blaspheming celestial beings. What's that? Good question. Now, this is one of those little controversies in Jude, because Jude, in essence here, this story, if you go paging through your Bible to figure out where the story is of Michael and Satan fighting over the body of Moses, you will not find it. It's not there. Unless you have somewhere of the assumption of Moses, okay? It's this pseudepigraphal work that likely people in the area have some access to and have read the story. That doesn't mean it's authoritative. It means that Jude is using an example that they would know. Okay? I used a sermon illustration earlier today, probably not the same thing as what, what Jude's doing here, but similar idea, which is I'm giving you sermon illustrations that you're not going to be able to go find in Scripture, but it's something that you might find resonates with you. Now, could it have happened? Sure. And why would it be a big deal? Because one of the things that we know about Moses when he died is they did go ahead and bury him, but people didn't really know where he was buried because they didn't want people to start worshiping Moses or building a shrine or an altar to Moses. So maybe that's why Michael and Satan would be fighting over the body of Moses. I don't know. But the point is not the factual like understanding of the burial of Moses. The point is what Jude is trying to do is point out to the audience that make sure you don't talk about things you don't understand. Because there's obviously people in the church that are thinking they have authority over the demonic that they don't actually have. But they think they understand celestial beings in the spiritual world, and they don't. And that's actually sometimes the temptation that creeps into churches throughout time is this idea that me, as a believer, I have authority and power over Satan. I don't. Who has the power and authority over Satan? Yeah, God does. Okay? Jesus, Son of God, God in human he does. Holy Spirit has that. Even the disciples didn't on their own, right? Luke chapters 9 and 10, you can read it later. But they go out and they try to exercise demons and they can't. And they kind of freak out. They go back to Jesus and say, why couldn't we do this? And they said, well, because those ones have, to, uh, it takes prayer to deal with those ones. Oh, what's the implication? They were pretty high in themselves, thought they had some power they didn't actually have. So the example Jude is using here is, even the archangel Michael 
didn't sit there and go back and forth with Satan. He simply said what? The Lord rebuke you, i.e., God is the one in control and has power. He's the one that does the rebuking. Remember our place. Remember who is God. That is the emphasis of what Jude is saying here. So in short, what you're looking here at the end of this first sermon, like I said, next time there'll be more tangible things that you'll see. But what we see here is we're not relying upon our own interpretations to create doctrine and make decisions. We are actually using the scriptures that God has given us. So we're not like those whose strength is their dreams. But what did God already give us? Because if you look back in verse 3, Jude points out, you already have once and for all the faith that's been entrusted. Sorry, it says there that once and for all, I'll read the whole verse since I'm trying to summarize it. I feel compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. In other words, you have all you need right now. Some dreamer might give you a different interpretation. They're wrong because you have the apostles' eyewitness account in the writings to you. That's what you need. Not some dreamer's interpretation of things. Don't reject the authority of God. Don't speak about things that you don't understand, including celestial beings. If you don't understand it, or if you understand by instinct, don't speak those things out without checking with Scripture. And so this is half the letter. We have the other half to go, and like I said, when we come back in two weeks to this, it'll start off with woe to them. It'll talk more with some, some, some kind of negative reinforcement. But I want you to take a look as we close this sermon at how Jude ends it, because I don't want to leave you with just this doom and gloom, because I don't think it's doom and gloom, because Jude wrote this a couple thousand years ago, and is the church still okay? Some churches, no, but the church global? Yes, it is. See, God's church is always going to persevere and make it. Now, whether churches in certain parts of the world continue to make it, that's where God's giving these warnings, Right? We can't just assume the American church will always be here and be healthy. Okay? Right now, I think you already know this, but in the world, churches in Southeast Asia, Africa, South America are exploding and doing wonderfully. Churches in Europe, America, Australia, not. Okay? There's reasons for that. We'll talk about those a little bit more in two weeks. I want to end with this thought, though. Ultimately, it's not all on our shoulders to make sure the church functions and goes right, right? All we actually need to do is follow the path that's been laid before us. We have scripture. We have prayer. We have each other. And we have the Holy Spirit. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. It's going to come back around here as we finish the, the letter. The church is in good shape because the head of the church is Jesus Christ. He's calling us on a wonderful journey. Not an arduous one. 
but he is the one that's able to keep us from stumbling if we follow him, if we keep our eyes on him. Remember Peter when he tried to walk on the water? When he was focused on Jesus, what was he able to do? Literally walk on water. When he started looking at all the trouble around him, the scary waves and the wind, start looking at the war, start looking at the other things in the news that tell you you should be very scared. We could be like Peter. When he starts looking at the scary things, what does he do? He sinks. But our merciful Savior reaches out and grabs him. I think when you look at that verse, I don't think it's just saying, you're a little faith, get in the boat. I don't think that's how it goes. I think it's a sympathetic, oh, you are so close. I got you. I'll keep you from stumbling. I'll keep you from sinking. Just keep your eyes on me. If the leaders in these churches, Jude could have written a whole different letter. If the leaders in the church just keep their eyes on Jesus, not on self, but on Jesus. And I think it's a message for the church and our nation today. We unite around the gospel. We follow Jesus, not all the noise. We follow Jesus. And the church will thrive. We get caught up in the, in the noise. Bad letters. <laughs> Keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we look at your word in those places where the word might be a little murky for us. And there's difficult passages. Let's step back, Lord, and look at what is your point why were those examples shared? And I think what we can see easily is that the stakes are very high, that we represent you well and accurately and lovingly, but that we make sure that you have delegated to us as your image bearers and your ambassadors the authority within our churches as believers to hold to the straight and narrow, to follow you, to not get caught up in the noise or the, the scandal, or the accusations that the world throws, but that we take seriously your word, your fellowship, prayer, not seeking our own way or our own dreams, our own imagination, but seeking after you. And that as we follow you, you will keep us from stumbling. You will keep us from sinking. You bring us into that glorious inheritance, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.